Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of At The Beam. I'm here with Josh No, and today we are going to start our series on lymphoma. Um, before that, just some housekeeping stuff. These are, will be our last two episodes before we start season two, and we're going to circle back to um, GU cases, and we have some exciting new episodes coming up, so be on the lookout for that. So, Josh, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you doing? How's everything? Great. I know I, I texted you yesterday, so I was very excited to record with you and see you today, and your immediate response was, I feel like a prank is brewing. <laughs> so love that you think I'm a, a troll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's evidenced by um, prior actions. So. <laughs> There's data to support. Uh, exactly. So I'm a little hesitant, but you know, I'm excited <laughs> to see you too. Glad you're doing well. I understand um, that you're running a, um, a marathon soon. Yes, I am. Um, I'm very excited. It's my second marathon and I'm doing the L.A. Um, next weekend. I'm a little nervous, um, but I have this goal time that I want to meet. And if I don't meet it, I'm going to be very upset. What's that goal time? <laughs> I don't want to disclose. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, but I will uh, say, yeah, yeah, I will say my last marathon I ran, I had, an, I also had a goal time. Um, but mostly it was just to finish and I exceeded oh, okay. it by 30 seconds and I was Whoa. pissed. <laughs> And I'm still seconds. bitter. I mean, there's got to be a plus or minus there. I mean, it sounds like 30 seconds is within range, you know? <laughs> Maybe your, your clock was off or... Yeah, I blame it I blame it on the beginning when I was... I, yeah, but anyways. Yeah. I mean, um, it's an impressive just like finishing. Honestly, I don't think I could even drive a marathon. <laughs> I can fall asleep <laughs> halfway through and pull over and quit. So, I mean, it's, it's impressive either way. <laughs> there are some... Um, I was talking to a dosimetrist in our department the other day, and her, I think, brother-in-law did this thing where he ran a marathon on a different continent every single day. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he would run the marathon the morning, and then he would hop on a plane in, in like, the afternoon Holy. and fly somewhere else and then run another marathon, which was crazy. And I admittedly did not believe it until I stalked his Instagram. <laughs> different strokes for different folks <laughs> that it's sounds wild. amazing yeah that's uh sounds difficult that I mean, it sounds really great yeah sounds, i mean definitely not my cup of person. tea <laughs> yeah yeah i think my goal is to be to take a nap every day on every continent <laughs> for seven days <laughs> and that's then, an excellent goal yeah I, I think i can achieve one of these days i mean it might take <laughs> the next few years but one of these days all right Okay, enough nonsense. So we're going to talk about <laughs> non-Hodgkin's lymphoma today, which is one of the two main classifications of lymphoma, um, the other one being Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
So how are non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma different in terms of clinical presentation? Non-Hodgkin's can present with nodal or extranodal sites with a greater predilection for extranodal disease compared to Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it usually spreads in a non-contiguous pattern. I always get the two confused, and a way I think of it is to imagine that the N stands for not nodal and non-contiguous. Note that the not nodal does not mean that sites are exclusively extranodal, just that there is more of an extranodal component. Also, in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, there tends to be more sites of disease at presentation. And a quick way to remember more sites is that NHL has three letters versus two in HL, hence more. All right. So those are some silly ways to remember the difference between non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's. So let's begin our case. All right. Yeah. Great tips. NHL, HL. (laughs) (laughs) We also want to not forget that there's uh, histological findings that are very key in distinguishing uh, non-Hodgkin's from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, So, True, just to continue, do you mind uh, just describing those for us, please? Read Sternberg cells. Uh, (laughs) So those are a major buzzword for classical Hodgkin's lymphoma and can help distinguish the two on pathology. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a quick tip to remember that is that there are two words in Reed Sternberg and two letters in Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you can couple those two together. Amazing. Um, Okay, so Josh, you're seeing a 70-year-old female with a waxing and waning history of swelling in her right groin. She noticed this first about two years ago, and it's fluctuated in size, but she has never sought medical care. What are some key details in the history and physical you're looking out for? Yeah, so when we're interviewing her and assuming that this may be a lymphoma, I'd be most interested in the presence of B symptoms. So this includes fever that's greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, greater than 10% body weight loss within six months, or drenching night sweats. So another important detail is whether she's noticed any other sites of swelling on her body. So on physical exam, I want to assess the size and mobility of the mass, look for signs of infection and presence of pain. Um, Additionally, and very important, I would do a full lymphatic exam assessing for additional lymphadenopathy. So this would include assessment of the neck, groin, axilla, as well as the abdomen. Good job. So do you happen to know what percent of non-Hodgkin cases present with B symptoms? And is it good if the patient screens positive for these? Yeah, so about a third of patients will have B symptoms, and it's uh, unfortunately a poor prognostic sign. And it's more commonly associated with aggressive histologies and extensive disease. All right. Um, and you did forget one thing on the fiscal exam, is that is which is that you should look for extranodal disease. So, what are some common extranodal lymphoid sites, and what are you specifically looking for on exam? All right. So, I, I believe some of the more common extranodal sites are in the GI system, orbit, lung, spleen, uh, and involvement of the tonsils and adenoids, also known as Waldeyer's ring. So, on exam, I want to carefully assess the liver and the spleen for a hepatosplenomegaly. Great. So she's asymptomatic otherwise without B symptoms. And on exam, there's a three centimeter mobile and non-painful inguinal lymph node. The remainder of the exam is negative. So what are your next steps? So lymphoma is one of the disease sites where select labs will be critical and they're important to obtain as they're often a component of prognostic assessments. So the one you should remember is the IPI or IPI, which stands for the International Prognostic Index. And it's used in aggressive forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you can remember the components of the IPI score or the IPI score using the mnemonic APLES. That's A-P-L-E-S. So this stands for age, which is um, we're looking for age greater than 60. 
PFS or uh, performance um, status with the ECOG score greater than or equal to two, uh, LDH that's greater than normal, or if there's greater than one extranodal group, uh, as well as stage three to four disease. So the number of points you get from the AP scores associated with five-year overall survival, albeit this was predicted during the pre-rituximab era. So Flippy and the now updated Flippy 2, both are modifications of the IPI score, and they're used only in follicular lymphoma. Uh, Flippy stands for Follicular Lymphoma International Prognostic Index. So if I think that this is a follicular lymphoma, the three labs that I um, that are used to calculate the Flippy score and the ones that I'd want to obtain are the hemoglobin, LDH, and B2 microglobulin. Um, but other routine labs, uh, such as uh, CBC, ESR, CMP, HIV, HPV, and HCV should also be ordered. So how do you want to obtain tissue, and is there anything you want to get if suspicion for lymphoma is high? Yeah, so the gold standard would be an excisional or incisional biopsy. Sometimes in practice, you'll see FNAs or core biopsies performed, but these are not sufficient ways to diagnose lymphoma. And you asked if there's anything else I'd want to get. Um, would that be a bone marrow biopsy? Exactly. So one, the sample from an FNA is limited, but can help distinguish between benign and malignant causes of lymphadenopathy. However, the answer is incisional or excisional biopsy. Two, a bone marrow biopsy should be ordered for all lymphomas. Just of no early stage indolent histology should be considered for a bone marrow biopsy, especially if considering radiation therapy. However, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma without focal avidity on PET-CT or cytopenias, there may be no need. Also, there is emerging research that in advanced follicular lymphoma, it may not impact outcomes. So although follicular lymphoma is less avid on PET, a bone marrow biopsy may be done less frequently for patients with advanced stage follicular lymphoma in the future. All right, so for this patient, the excisional biopsy returns as a grade two follicular lymphoma. Brain marrow biopsy is negative. So follicular lymphoma is the most common type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and it's important to remember the immunophenotype of lymphomas. Josh, do you remember what these are for follicular lymphoma? So this would be CD19 and CD20. Uh, translocation 1418 is the buzzword for follicular lymphoma, and this translocation results in overexpression of BCL2. Great. So her labs return with a hemoglobin of nine. You also go ahead and get a staging PET-CT, which shows only FDG uptake at one lymph node in the right groin, measuring three centimeters. Let's risk stratify her first by the Flippy score. So we will use Flippy 2, which is an updated version since Flippy 1 was designed the pre-rituximab era, although we recognize that Flippy has been validated in the rituximab era. So you get one point if you fulfill any of the following criteria. A beta-2 microglobulin which is elevated, a positive bone marrow biopsy, a lymph node that's greater than six centimeters in size, age greater than 60 years old, or a hemoglobin that's less than 12. A mnemonic to remember this is LA with two Bs. In this patient, she gets two points, one for a hemoglobin less than 12 and one for age greater than 60 years old. So Josh, can you describe the five-year overall survival estimates based off of the flippy two? Yeah, so with zero points, you're looking at somebody who's low risk or overall survival of five years at 98%. One to two points is intermediate risk, and we're looking at 88%. And then three to five points will be high risk, and we're looking at a five-year overall survival of 77%. Fantastic. So prognostically, her five-year overall survival is 88%. What is her stage, and can you review the Ann Arbor staging system? 
Yeah, sure thing. So stage one is when there's one lymph node region or one site. Stage two is when there are two or more sites on the same side of the diaphragm. Stage three is when there's disease on both sides of the diaphragm. And then stage four is when there's diffuse and widespread extra lymphatic disease. In this patient with just a single sided disease, we'd consider a stage one. And how would you manage a patient with stage one follicular lymphoma? So for stage one disease, the preferred treatment is definitive RT with ISRT. Uh, this is also an option for patients with contiguous stage two disease as well. We can also observe which may be the better option if RT to the involved site might have a higher toxicity risk uh, to therapeutic ratio. For this patient, I would favor treating. So um, the dose we'd be looking at is 24 grain, 12 fractions to that right inguinal lymph node. Excellent. And how are you going to simulate the patient? So for simulation, uh, we would consider uh, placing our patient in a supine position with arms on the chest and that right leg frog-legged to reduce any skin folds. We also obtain a non-contrast CT scan. And then for my GTV, I'd contour the gross lymph node and add a generous CTV margin to make sure we don't miss any subclinical disease. This can be up to five centimeters centrally and two centimeters distally. But of course, we'd crop out any anatomic boundaries and OARs. I'd also then want to add an additional PTV margin of five millimeters. And when I'm conducting a planner view, I want to make sure that there aren't any hot spots at or near the skin. Yeah, so when we are treating to a total dose of 24 gray and 2 gray fractions, dose constraints are often easier to meet. However, we want to make sure that there's adequate dose coverage, i.e. 95% of the PTV is receiving 100% of the dose, and minimize and evaluate hot spots. So your patient, she finishes treatment with mild skin irritation at the groin and practice good skin care throughout her radiation course, and then she asks you, now what? Yeah, so at this point, we should get a restaging PET-CT scan three months after radiotherapy to assess for treatment response, and this is going to be graded by the Lugano criteria. So think of a score of one, two, and three is good and represents a complete response, and a score of four or five will represent a partial response. So this score is based off of FDG uptake in comparison to the mediastinal and liver uptake. So one is if there's no uptake at all. Two is if there's uptake that's less than or equal to the mediastinal uptake. Three is if there's uptake that's greater than the mediastinum, but less than or equal to the liver. Four is if there's uptake greater than the liver. And then five is if there's uptake uh, much greater than the liver or there are new lesions present. Okay. So let's say on PET-CT, there's mild residual uptake in the lesion less than the liver, representing a Lugano score of two. With this favorable response, she goes on to routine surveillance with history and physical and labs every three to six months for five years, then lengthening after five years. For imaging, she should continue getting scans every six months for the first two years. But if this isn't the case, and instead on resaging PET-CT, she develops progressive disease at the right groin, and there is now FDG uptake in the spleen and lung, what are you worried about here? Yeah, so I'd be worried about transformation to more aggressive disease. Um, some of the clues that a histologic transformation may have occurred are when we look at rising LDH levels, any clinical progression, or any new B symptoms. So on the PET scan, there may be marked heterogeneity or sites of intense FDG uptake. In this case, we should consider rebiopsy at the most FDG avid site of disease. Yeah, so her biopsy confirms transformation to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's important to distinguish whether this is double hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because it impacts what type of systemic therapy is given. 
she has a double hit. Um, so Josh, what does double hit mean and what is your treatment recommendation? So I believe double hit means uh, there is a MYC and BCL2 that are present. BCL6 at one point was used to qualify this, but this is no longer the case. This can be detected by IHC or FISH. In these cases, we would recommend enrollment on clinical trials and consideration of ISRT to localize disease. If trials are not an option, then RCHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC are maybe considered in a patient with minimal prior therapy. You're right about the double hit definition. Um, if BCL2 and MYC are translocated, that is called a DC, DLBCL with double hit, previously known as high-grade B-cell lymphomas. And these are at higher risk of CNS involvement. In our patient, she also has some additional risk factors, such as advanced age and more than one extranodal site. So a diagnostic LP may be indicated. What are some options for CNS prophylaxis? So before we go into that, we should make sure that people understand that the role of CNS prophylaxis is controversial and individual patient um, considerations of risk factors are important. There are two options for a CNS prophylaxis. So one is using systemic high-dose methotrexate or uh, intrathecal methotrexate with cytarabine. So additionally, we need to consider timing. Uh, most do not intercalate CNS prophylaxis during chemotherapy and we want to avoid any delay to the next chemotherapy cycle. Some think that high-dose methotrexate is better due to um, higher parenchymal penetration. Good job. Um, so let's change it up and say the patient was diagnosed with stage 3 follicular lymphoma diagnosis. What are her treatment options then? So believe it or not, patients with stage 3 or stage 4 follicular lymphoma are candidates for observation. And so you might ask, how do we determine whether observation is appropriate? Uh, this is when we turn into the GELF criteria. So that's spelled G-E-L-F, kind of like a gangster elf, but it stands for, um, and I hope all my French friends here, excuse me for this butchering, but group two des lymphomas folliculares. So if there are three or greater nodal sites, each 3CM or larger, or any site that's greater, or equal to 7CM, and uh, B symptoms present, uh, pleural effusions, peritoneal ascites, cytopenias, or leukemia, it's more compelling to start treatment. Now, additionally, you can consider palliative low-dose radiotherapy as well using a two-by-two regimen. So this is four grain, two total fractions. Now, this can have a response in over 90% of patients that are treated. Although the response may be that high, we have to consider that at five years, the four trials showed that there was only a 66% freedom from local failure. So it's just an important um, point to keep in mind. Great. So you got almost all of the GELF criteria except one, which is splenomegaly. Uh, so Josh, what would systemic therapy consist of? So first-line systemic therapy can vary depending on the institution, but they would include CHOP. CVP plus obinotuzumab and rituximab, uh, lenalidomide and rituximab, or abendamustine and obinotuzumab or rituximab. Great job, Josh. Um, thanks for working through this case of indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with me. We would like to thank Dr. Michael Binkley of Stanford University for helping review today's script. You can find the show notes online. Be well and remember to always trust but verify. Yeah, it I'm hearing sound my as mind, clear like, as it usually sounds. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're know. a little dead inside. <laughs> How do we fix that? I don't think we can fix that. <laughs>